The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer, W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have revealed so much of yourself to us through your word. We thank you that it is our absolute guide. It is the light through which we see all other light. It is the frame of reference on the basis of which we understand everything within your creation. Father, we pray that as we study your word under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, that we will come to understand these things, and that God the Holy Spirit will make it clear how we should apply them in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So now that we have had our time of silent prayer, make sure your cell phones are off. Mine is where it should be, which is in the car, so we won't have that interruption. We're in Hebrews chapter 3, starting a new chapter in Hebrews. I don't know about you, but I'm having a great time with this study of Hebrews. I have never taught my way through the book of Hebrews before, and there is so much in this book, and it is... So exciting to go back, at least for me, to go back and see how things connect to the Old Testament and bring things forward and then just to pull everything together to understand all of the nuances, all the shades of meaning, all of the uh, innuendo that underlies uh, the teaching in Hebrews. This is a tremendous, tremendous book. Now, as I have said, just to give us a little focus as we enter into a new paragraph, which is chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, I want to go back structurally and think about where we're going. The writer starts off in the first four verses by giving us a basic orientation to the fact that it is in these last days, that is the church age, God has finally, fully, completely, sufficiently spoken through His Son. And the Son's qualifications are emphasized in reference to His deity being the exact caricature or exact representation of the the Father. He is the express image, the uh, hypostases of His person. He upholds all things by the word of His power. And He has been elevated to the right hand of the Father on high. So within the structure of verse 3 of chapter 1, there's an emphasis on His deity on the one hand and His humanity on the other. The humanity comes through that He is sat down at the right hand of the Father. Deity doesn't sit down. That in His humanity, He's been elevated above the angels. So embedded within this is the outworking of the nuances of the word Son. That He is a Son. He is a Son of God, indicating full deity. He is the Son of Man, indicating true humanity. He is the Son of David, His royal title that uh, relates to the Davidic covenant and prior to that, the Abrahamic covenant. And in His humanity, He has 
gone through the trials and the tests and the suffering of the first advent, which qualified him to go to the cross. And it is his victory on the cross that qualified him for the uh, resurrection and promotion to heaven advance above all the angels. And then in verses 5 down through 14, there's the emphasis on his superiority to the angels. And again, this emphasizes more the humanity side of the sonship. Because as the Son of God, as full deity, he has always been in authority over the angels. He has always been superior to the angels. But in his humanity, as the Son of David, as the Son of Man, who has gone through that sanctification process... He has passed all of the tests, and in his humanity he's elevated above the angels and qualified for the position to rule and reign over the angels. And right now he's in a holding pattern awaiting the coming or the giving of the kingdom. Daniel 7, Psalm 110, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. All of that... From verse 5 down through the end of chapter 1 or in, in one fourteen, functions as the first point in the sermon. That first point comes to a conclusion with a warning and a challenge to us that we must not drift away because of the significance of everything that's going on. And instead, what we should do, uh, uh, verse 3, how shall we escape? If we neglect so great a salvation, and salvation here has that idea of ultimate glorification, the goal or the direction of our salvation in terms of where God is taking us towards, towards the future. That's like the first step. So we've taken this first step up that the Son in His humanity is elevated above the angels, And in his humanity, he has accomplished something that is, as we develop on the second step, is related to his uh, uh, being a pioneer in our sanctification. So we have the concluding challenge of chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Then we go to the second point. And the second point unpacks the whole idea of his role as the pioneer and the precedent setter for our spiritual life. And the first verses from 5 through through 9 focus on that, that he is the one that as a man, as the son of man, fulfills everything God designed man to do. Thus, because he completes everything, he is elevated over the angels, emphasizing that the world to come, in verse 5, That world to come is going to be in subordination to him as a man, not to the angels. And this emphasizes that whole process of how did he get there? What qualified him for that ruling and reigning position in in the future? That comes into play, the mechanics of that come into play in verses 10 through 18, where we see that he, in verse 11, he who sanctifies, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, and those who are being sanctified, that's us, are all of one. And that should be understood, all of one nature. It's an emphasis on his hypostatic union, that he's accomplishing all of this in his humanity. Uh, verse 14, and as much then as, just as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, that's us, He himself, in the same way, shared in the same. That is flesh and blood. And so, in his humanity, he goes through these uh, tests and trials that as the captain of our salvation, back in verse 10, he would be brought to completion through suffering. Where that takes him is that he then becomes our merciful and faithful high priest. Verse 17 For explanation, in that he himself has suffered, being tested, he is then able to aid those, that is, believers in the church age, who are being tested. Now, that brings us to the concluding part of the second step. Now, we conclude it with verse 6. Then we go to the challenge, the exhortation, the warning, and that's a long section. I mean, the last warning was only four verses. This warning extends from uh, chapter 3, verse 7, down through the end of chapter 4. So it's a much longer challenge. But if you don't understand 
the argument that he's laying out here, the position he's laying out here, that Jesus Christ in his humanity sets the pattern and precedent as the as the uh, pathfinder of our salvation and that he is brought as the one who completes, then we don't understand where this warning is going to go. And the, as it were, the transition or the connection comes in these next few verses. So we read in verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren... Partakers of the heavenly calling. He is addressing believers, not just then. He is addressing them primarily, but He is addressing us, all believers in the church age, through that initial first century audience. Therefore, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Now that's only the starting point. This is all part of a sentence, one and two are one sentence. The reason I emphasize this is because there's a lot of additional detail in these two verses, but the main idea is given in the mandate, the command of verse 1, which is to consider Christ Jesus. That's the main idea. Everything else are sort of the frills and uh, the whistles and bells on the main idea. So if you keep your focus on that command then everything else, and even down through verse 6, actually supports that mandate. Now let's take it apart exegetically. The first word, therefore, isn't really an, uh, a conclu- uh, an inference conclusion like therefore. It, it is an inferential particle, but it has the idea of referring to the cause or the ground or the motive of something. It's, it's, uh, it's a type of inference. Therefore... Holy brethren, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession. So the mandate here becomes the ground for everything that's going to come after it. Okay, This becomes a foundation. Everything else in those next few verses supports that. Uh, what's in verse 1. Therefore, and then we're addressed as holy brethren. The word hagias doesn't mean that we're perfect, that we're morally pure, that we are without sin. Holy, hagias, means to be set apart to the service of God. And the reason that we can be called holy is because we are positionally sanctified because of our identification with He, with the one who sanctifies. He who sanctifies is the phrase back in verse 11. And according to Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 6, at the instant you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, one of the... Forty things that happen to you at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone is that God the Holy Spirit took you uh, under the direction of God the Son and identified you with the Son's death, burial, and resurrection. And that's called the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. And it's also termed positional truth. That is our position in Christ. We are placed in Him by means of God the Holy Spirit. And that positionally sets us apart so that we can now serve God. It distinguishes us from everyone else in the human race. So we are holy and set apart. It doesn't refer to experiential morality. It refers to positional righteousness. We are holy brethren. The term adolphos is often used to refer to fellow members of the royal family of God. This connects this verse, 3.1, back to, again, to 2.11. 2.11, where we find the phrase, He is not ashamed to call them, that is, other, others in the body of Christ, He is not ashamed to call them brethren. And that's supported by a verse from Psalm 22. 22, I will declare your name to my brethren. And then my brethren are referred to as children. In verse 13, and his children in verse 14. And now we're back to holy brethren. This is a form of address. He addresses these believers as holy brethren. This tells us, this gets important when we get into some of these warning passages, that he's addressing them as believers. He has no doubt that they're believers. There's not a question that they're believers. There's not a question that they can lose their salvation. He addresses them as believers. And this can also just the, ver- the verbiage itself, the nomenclature, ties 
the whole section together conceptually. They are holy brethren. Second thing that they are called is partakers of the heavenly calling. The word partakers is the noun metikos. It's in the plural metikoi. But it means companions or partakers or partners or fellow workers. Again, it is another term to describe members of the body of Christ who are all in partnership, all members of one another in the body of Christ. That's one of the interesting dynamics of the body of Christ is that we're not a bunch of lone rangers out there trying to live the Christian life on our own. I know there are people who are in uh, unusual circumstances and all they've got is a tape recorder, an MP3 player, but the body of Christ isn't designed to be a lone ranger operation under normal circumstances. It's designed to be the interaction of a body of believers meeting together in a local church. There is an interdependency. The scripture says we are members of one another in Romans chapter, uh, Romans chapter 12. There is this interdependency in the body of Christ. We are companions. We're partakers. We participate together in everything that the Lord Jesus Christ has provided and He is the head of the body of Christ. So we're partakers of the heavenly calling. Heavenly has to do with its destiny. We're, the calling has to do with our response to the gospel and the gospel call. And the, the adverb hev, heavenly relates to its ultimately ultimate destiny. That we are partakers. We participate in a future destiny. So the backdrop idea here has to do with that eternal sense of destiny. We are headed for heaven. We're not just going to be left uh, here on the earth. It's not all about our time on the earth. Our time on the earth is related to our heavenly calling, our heavenly destiny. Now, those two phrases, holy brethren and partakers of the heavenly calling, indicate the recipients of this uh, epistle. And then... We have the command, kata noeo in the Greek. Consider is how it's translated or think about or concentrate on. It's an aorist active imperative second person plural. Second person plural means all y'all. So all y'all have to concentrate on something. And that's the meaning of kata noeo. Kata is a preposition prefix that intensifies the meaning of the verb. And the verb noeo has to do with thought. Once again, the Christian life has to do with thinking and not emoting. It has to do with learning what God says, obeying His mandates, and that's how we demonstrate our love for God. Our personal love for God is by obeying Him. The aorist imperative emphasizes priority. It's as if the writer is putting this in bold-faced type and underlining it. Something to do now, not, he's not emphasizing the fact that it should be continuous, I'm sure it should be, but it's emphasizing the priority. These readers need to do this now, why? Because they're in danger of drifting away. That was the warning back in 2.1, lest we drift away. So they need to think now, they need to focus now, they need to carefully observe, concentrate, contemplate who Jesus Christ is and what he, what he has done. So the verb itself implies an object, and the focal point of that thought is not just contemplating your navel or waiting for liver quiver. It is to focus on Jesus Christ. And there's an unusual phraseology here for Jesus Christ. Two words are used. The first is he's called the apostle of our confession, the apostle. And the word apostle translates apostolos. This is the only place in the uh, New Testament where Jesus Christ is referred to as an apostle. Now, there's several different groups of people that are referred to as apostles in the New Testament. You have a group of 11 disciples that began the church age. They are designated as apostles. They have the office of an of apostle. They have a spiritual gift of apostle. And they are commissioned directly 
by the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And the qualifications to be an apostle were that, number one, they had to be a witness of his life and his teaching. Number two, they had to be a witness of the resurrection. And number three, they had to be directly commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The twelfth apostle is the apostle Paul. And he is directly commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ when Jesus Christ appeared to him as one out of time, born out of time when he is on the road to Damascus to go uh, murder a bunch of believers. When you look at the word apostello, the verb form, it has to do with the act of commissioning someone. And what's important to pay attention to in the context is who's doing the commissioning and what are they being commissioned to do. If you misidentify who's being commissioned what they're being commissioned to do, then you will confuse the average, normal, everyday use of apostolos with the what we would consider to be the uppercase apostle of the those who are commissioned by Christ. You have another group of people, such as Barnabas and Junius and others, who are missionaries who are sent out from local churches, and they are also called apostles. But they would be apostles in terms of the lower case A because they're not being commissioned by Jesus Christ for the mission of the the twelve. They're being commissioned by local churches for a temporary mission to carry the gospel to a specific group of people in terms of missionary activity. The gift of apostle is not the gift of missionary. There is no spiritual gift of missionary. There is a gift of apostle and it was limited to the eleven original disciples plus the Apostle Paul. Jesus Christ is called an apostle, and the word apostle in its root meaning has to have been commissioned to perform a task, to be sent on a mission, to be a military or a political envoy, or even an ambassador. Now, Jesus Christ is an apostle in the sense that he is commissioned for a task by God the Father. He is sent from heaven to earth on a mission. So he is referred to as an apostle. Now there is a reason that the writer of Hebrews in this verse is referring to Jesus as a sent one, as an apostolos. And that is because in these six verses there is going to be a comparison and contrast between Jesus Christ, as the apostolos and high priest, the apostle and high priest, and Moses. And in Exodus chapter 3, verse 10, God said to Moses, I will send you to Pharaoh. And in the Septuagint, the verb apostello is used. So as Moses was a sent one, sent and commissioned by God to go to Pharaoh and then to lead the people, so Jesus Christ is sent from God. And there's going to be a development of this comparison to demonstrate the superiority of Jesus in the passage. The second word is a word for high priest. And when we look at the two words in their construction in the Greek, we have an, an interesting phraseology. Just as in English, we have the apostle and high priest. We don't have the apostle and the high priest. There's no repetition of the second article. It's not a Granville Sharp rule for a number of reasons, but it does fit the criterion for what's called a hendiadis. A hendiadis. And a hendiadis is a figure of speech where there are two closely connected nouns that indicate the same thing. Usually, you have the same kind of thing that you do with the Granville Sharp rule. You have an article, noun, conjunction, noun type of construction. And what this means, for example, in Ephesians 4, uh, 10 and 11, where you have the term pastor and teacher, it's a pastoring teacher or teaching pastor. That's how it should be understood. We often translate it pastor hyphen teacher, but the two words work together as one is a, a main noun, the other modifies it. So it would be a uh, teaching pastor would be the idea, or pastoring teacher, emphasizing uh, the two functions, but as 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 one entity. You have the same thing here. Is this is the uh, the uh, sent high priest, the commissioned high priest? 
So you pull the two words together where they have a similar uh, meaning that we must consider the commissioned high priest. So Jesus Christ is sent as a high priest. Now Moses doesn't have that high priestly function, so there's that, there's that difference between the two. So we are to focus on him, we're to concentrate on him, we're to think about him, we're to meditate on him. He is to be the focal point of our thinking, occupation with Christ. So we're to consider the apostle and high priest of what? It just it doesn't just say the apostle and high priest or the commissioned high priest. Christ Jesus, there's this other word in there that he is the commissioned high priest of our confession. Of our confession. The word there for confession is the Greek word homologia, which means to confess, to admit, to make a statement of belief. We often think of a confessional statement in church history, which is a doctrinal statement or a creed, such as the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or the Chalcedonian Creed. These are called confessions of faith or statements of doctrine. They summarize what, uh, uh, they summarize a body of belief. So here we see that Jesus Christ is the commissioned high priest of everything that we believe, everything that is foundational to Christianity. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers, participants, co-participants in the heavenly calling, focus your attention and thought on the commissioned high priest of our belief system, Christ Jesus. And then we come to a Another construction in the second verse. Remember, the second verse is a continuation of the first verse. There's no verse number breaking this apart in the original Greek. Now, the way it's translated in most uh, most translations is as a relative clause. Who was faithful? Now, here we get into a little stipulation and technicality of Greek grammar. This word for was is actually the present active participle of the verb amy. It doesn't have an article with it. Now, when I teach basic grammar and syntax of participles, I usually emphasize it's real easy to tell the difference. A participle is, let's back up a minute, participle is a, 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 a verbal adjective. That means sometimes it acts like a verb, sometimes it acts like an adjective. The way you tell the difference is whether or not it has an article. Verbs don't have articles. So if there's an article there, it's going to tell you it functions more like a noun or an adjective. So when, and when it does, it functions either as a noun or it functions as a relative clause, like who was. We don't have an article there. So as soon as you don't see an article there, you know it's probably not a relative clause. If it lacks the article, it's going to function more like a verb or an adverb. Now, the adverb can have various shades of meaning. The one that fits this context is an adverbial participle of cause. So if we read the two passages together, we would read, Consider or focus or concentrate on Christ Jesus because He was faithful. See, that's why we focus on Christ in this context, because He was faithful in the testing that God took Him through, so that test after test after test, suffering after suffering after suffering, He consistently relied upon the problem-solving devices. He depended upon God the Holy Spirit. He didn't try to solve his the trials and testing in His personal spiritual life by falling back on his deity. He never uh, sinned. He never committed a sin. He never disobeyed God. So because he was faithful throughout that spiritual growth process, we're to concentrate on him. We're to focus on him. He is our model. He is our the precedent setter. He is the captain of our salvation, as the New King James puts it back in verse 10. He is the precedent setter, the pathfinder. He is the pioneer. All of those nuances are part of that word. So it, you lose the thrust if you don't translate verse 2 correctly. Because he was faithful, 
to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all of his house. Now, we're going to bring in Moses here, but before we do, we have to run around in the Old Testament a little bit. When we see this first phrase, that he was faithful to him who appointed him, or because he was faithful to him who appointed him, it takes us back to a phraseology in 1 Chronicles 17, 14. Who was, he was faithful to him who established him. It's, it's, uh, the, the word there in the Greek is poieo, the basic word for to do or to make or to appoint or to elevate. It has various shades of meaning. But it takes us back to 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles 17.14 we read, God speaking. And he says, and I will establish him in my house. Oh, house. We haven't gotten there yet, but house is a major term in these six verses in Hebrews 3. I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Now, what's the context of Second Chronicles or First Chronicles 17:14? The context is a reiteration of the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant establishes what? It establishes the sonship, Jesus Christ, sonship of David, that title. That's why I took the time to go back and give us a little review that when you talk about Jesus, or talk about the Son in Hebrews, it brings to bear these titles that he's the Son of David, the Son of Man, and that's the background. Who's he writing to? Remember, the audience here is uh, Jewish believers who are being tested, going through adversity, and wanting to just chunk their Christianity and go back into Judaism. So there's the, there are these connections going on. And the allusion here in the first part of chapter 3, verse 2, is to the appointment of the Davidic son. And so we pick up the context of 1 Chronicles 17, 13 through 15, where we read in God's promise, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. It's talking about the heir of David. So the fact that it's talking about the heir of David, picking it up from the previous context, that indicates humanity, doesn't it? He is a physical descendant of David. So right there we have the, the idea that this person is going to be a human being because he's a descendant of David. I will be his father and he shall be my son and I will not take my loving kindness, my faithful, loyal covenant love away from him as I took it away from him who was before you. That's an allusion to Saul because of his disobedience and rebelliousness. Verse 14, But I will settle him or I will appoint him in my house. Now this terminology, my house, is crucial to the interpretation of chapter uh, Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. My house is that domain of people over whom God has authority. I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Now, the implication there is, if this person is going to have a throne that's established forever, then he must pick up some divine attributes, otherwise, as a human being, he would die. So the implication here is is not only is he human, but he's also divine. I mean, it's not the kind of implication that just leaps right out at you, but it's embedded within the, uh, the terminology here. So we see this concept of being appointed in my house as a backdrop for Hebrews, Hebrews 3, verse 2. That it is Christ, because he was faithful, to him who appointed him. And that appointment has to do with his Davidic sonship. As Moses also in all of his house. And it's, there's an ellipsis or it leaves out the concept of faithful, but that's the comparison. Christ is faithful in his task. Moses is faithful in his task. That's the point of comparison. The term house, as we look, it can have various Meanings It can refer to a dynasty, but here it has to do with a community of people, a community of believers. So Christ is going to be faithful to his house, as we see, that is the community of 
believers that he is over, which is church-age believers, and Moses is faithful in his house. Some of your versions capitalize that, which is what we see up on the, up on the overhead, is the his, in the, see, in the original Greek, the his isn't capitalized. So the question you have to answer yourself, are we talking about his house being God's house, are we talking about his house being that domain that God has given, that realm of responsibility God's given to Moses? And so I believe that this should be a lower case. It's up for debate, but I believe it should be lower case that Moses is faithful in his house, that is Israel. Christ is faithful in his house. Skip down. If you've got your Bible and you should have your Bible open. In verse 6 it says, But Christ as a son. See, that's where we pick up that sonship idea out of the Davidic covenant. But Christ as a son over his own house is in contrast to the house that Moses is over. So that indicates that the Mosaic house is Israel and the, uh, the house that Christ is over is, is the church. So the comparison then picks up Moses and his faithfulness. Well, let's go back to the Old Testament and take a look at a key passage on Moses' faithfulness. Turn to Numbers chapter 12. And while you're going to Numbers chapter 12, I will remind you of Deuteronomy 18.15, where there is a tremendous prophecy that God will give a prophet in the latter days that will be greater than Moses. Deuteronomy 18.15 reads, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, that is Moses who's speaking, will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. And that was a prophecy that is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now if you turn to Numbers chapter 12, we have to understand a little bit about the context. In Numbers chapter 12, in the middle of the book of Numbers, there are three complaints by Israel where they're griping and complaining against God. And then there are three rebellions. The first complaint has to do with the people just complaining in general towards God, and God judges them with a, a brush, some sort of a brush fire, grass fire around the surrounding of the camp. That's in, that's in Numbers 11, 1 through 3. And then there's, there's a second complaint where they complain about the food, and they want to go back to the leeks and the garlics of Egypt, and they don't like the, uh, the manna that they're having to eat on a daily basis. And so God uh, punishes them by sending uh, quail in their midst, and they kill so many and eat so much that they become sick, and God sends a, a plague of food poisoning, I guess, something like that, among them. And then you have the third complaint, which comes up in uh, Numbers 12. And this is the complaint of Miriam and Aaron. And they start complaining about Moses being the the head leader because of the Cushite or Ethiopian woman whom he marries. So he has taken another wife who is Ethiopian or Cushite, and so they have a problem with his him getting married again, and so uh, they want to make an issue about that. And in verse 2 of chapter 12, they say, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? Well, we're as good as you are. They don't recognize that everybody's as good as anybody else, but God has different roles and different place, positions of authority for different people. So it's an authority issue. And all through here we see that the Israelites fail to understand authority orientation. And they're complaining and they're griping. They're just not oriented to the plan of God. And then following these three complaints, there are three rebellions uh, that take place. And this is the, but this is not a rebellion. This is just a complaint. And we're told in the middle of this complaint, in verse 3, Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Now let me put it to you that if you've got two and a half to three and a half million griping and complaining, and spiritually carnal people that you're leading through the wilderness, you are not some mealy mouth, weak-kneed, 
leader who just gets pushed around by everybody. That's not what humble means. People in our society just have a hard, hard time defining the terms humble, humility, or meek. All these terms relate to one another and are often different English words used to translate the root uh, Greek and Hebrew words for humility and meekness. We think it means just to be some sort of passive doormat that everybody walks over and walks on top of. But that just doesn't fit Moses, anything that we know about Moses. So we have to correct our understanding of these words. What does humility mean in the Scripture? Humility means proper authority orientation and submission to your authority in its context. It relates to the fact that Moses was more authority-oriented, and his orientation is to the authority of God. He's more authority-oriented than any man who was on the earth. You have the same concept of humility in Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11, when, where we have the famous kenosis passage, which we covered recently, where Jesus humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death. What does humility mean in the context? Just think about it. He humbled himself by being what? By being obedient. The core idea of humility and meekness is that you are oriented to proper authority and submissive to that authority. It doesn't mean that you're just some uh, weak, wimpy person that has no backbone, no, uh, no stamina, no strength, no conviction. Just let people run all over you. So the implication here is Moses is the most authority-oriented person on the face of the earth. Now look at what happens. Suddenly the Lord says to Moses, he, he, he's heard their whining and their complaining, and says, come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So he, the Lord calls for a meeting, and trust me, when the Lord calls for a meeting, they ought to be shaking a little bit. Let's go to the, to the tabernacle. And the Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle. Now, I'm just having a tough time visualizing how Miriam and Aaron are standing there complaining about Moses. And here comes this this cloud that descends out of heaven right into the... Just think of the special effects that Hollywood could do with this. This has got to be an impressive scene. And they're wanting to stand up and complain. They just, carnality just and arrogance just know no bounds. It's amazing how tenacious arrogance is. And God comes down to them and he says, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision or in a dream. In other words, the normal operating procedure for prophecy is that I speak through a vision or a dream. But that's not how I do it with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. He is faithful in all my house. Have we read that somewhere before? Let's back up a couple of slides. What's the comparison in Hebrews 3.2? Because Christ was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. Where do you think that came from? The writer of Hebrews is referring directly back to this episode in Numbers chapter 12, that Moses is the most authority-oriented human being, but Christ is higher. Moses is the highest prophet of all time, Deuteronomy 18, but Christ is higher. There is this implicit superiority in the person of Jesus Christ as the appointed Son. So, back to the Miriam and Aaron complaint. God goes on to say, I speak to Moses face to face. Remember the other prophets, it's a dream or a vision. It's, It's not direct in the same way it's direct with Moses. I speak to him face to face, even plainly and not in dark or enigmatic sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. He may see his backside, but he sees the form of the Lord. Why then... Were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? He just sort of slices him and dices him. You know, why weren't you afraid? Where is your humility? 
So the anger of the Lord, and that is the uh, judicial operation of his righteousness. It's an uh, anthropopathism for his the operation of his justice. The anger of the Lord was aroused against him, and he departed. And when the cloud departed above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous, as white as snow. Now, that's not the kind of leprosy that we have. It's a a skin disease. We're not sure what it was. And Aaron turns towards Miriam, and there she was, a leper. I think, I'm I'm wondering how Aaron handled that, because nothing happens here to Aaron. He turns and looks at her, and she has just been, I mean, all of a sudden, she's just got these skin sores, and her skin's about half eaten away, and she's just turned into just the most scary, awful looking thing you can imagine. He's probably thinking, oh, what's going to happen to me next? And Aaron said, just screams out to Moses, oh, my Lord, please don't lay this. He says to Moses, don't lay this on us in which we have done foolishly and in which we have sinned. This is called probably remorse, but it seems like it's genuine repentance. It's, it's a, he's instantly straightened out. So he says, please don't let her be as one dead. And so he pleads with Moses to pray to God, and God then intercedes for her in verse 13. And God then responds by saying, look, if her father even spit in her face, she'd be ceremonially unclean for seven days, so send her out of the camp. That's the least punishment she deserves is to be uh, removed from the people, so she is. The point of this whole episode is to indicate God's position or the authority of, uh, that God has given Moses over his house. He was the he was faithful in all my house. That is in the community of believers that God placed Moses over. Okay, let's move ahead in Hebrews. Back to Hebrews chapter three. Now remember, what's the main idea here? Don't lose the forest for the trees. The main idea here is to focus on Jesus because he's faithful. Now, what about, and he's writing a Jewish audience, so what about Moses? Moses was faithful. Moses was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. What about Moses? And the answer is that Jesus is superior to Moses. For this one, that is Jesus Christ, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And as much as he who built the house is more honor than the house. Simple little analogy. Jesus Christ has more honor than Moses because Jesus Christ, if you take a home builder, the one who designs the house, the architect, the designer, the builder, has is more honor than what he produces. Moses is a creature. Jesus Christ is the creator. Therefore, as the creator, he is worthy of more glory than Moses, who is simply a creature. And then that creatureliness is going to be developed in verse 5 as a, a, as a servant. The analogy continues in verse 4. The explanation continues in verse 4. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. So these communities, the community of Israel in the Old Testament, the community of Jewish believers, the community of church-age believers in the New Testament are all under the authority of God. Two separate communities here. Verse 5, Moses indeed was faithful in all his house. And I believe that should be a lowercase his, in all his house as a servant. And the word here, a servant, is not the word doulos, which is the word that you find in the, normally in the Greek translated, uh, translated slave or, or servant. It is the Greek word therapon. And a therapon was someone who served someone else out of his own free will. He is he's not a slave. He is not hired. He just serves someone out of his own positive volition. So it's a term of high praise for Moses. Moses isn't a servant as in the case of a slave. He is a servant in one who has freely given himself to the position of serving God. Moses can't be painted in, 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 in higher praise than we have in these verses. But above Moses, there's Jesus Christ. That's why we focus on Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is the pattern for our sanctification, not Moses, not the Mosaic Law, 
not the Old Testament. It is Jesus Christ who is the pathfinder, the pioneer, and the completer of our doctrine. Hebrews 12.2 So Moses was faithful. He's honorable. He should be praised. But he is a only a servant, a free will servant in the house. But contrast, Christ as a son over his own house. As the son of David, he's over his house. He has his own uh, people, his own community of believers whose house we are. See, that's the key interpretive phrase that helps us understand all this terminology about house. We are in that community, and then there's a third-class condition if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. And a third-class condition is kind of funny. Normally, for simplicity's sake, I'll talk about the third-class condition as if maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But if you read the grammars in the technical language of, of the grammars, it says that it is a condition of more probability. So even in a third-class condition, the nuance here is that whose house we are and we are, even though it's a third-class condition, whose house we are and we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the confidence firm to the end. The implication is that we work out the, the, our position by holding fast our, that confidence, that future hope to the end, and not give up, not drift away as they were being tested to do in this particular community. So this brings us to the end of this, this second section, which emphasizes the role of Jesus Christ as our pioneer in establishing the pattern for the Christian life. It's not the Old Testament. It's not Moses. It's not the Mosaic Law. It's not the Ten Commandments. It's not the ritual of the Old Testament. It's not the morality of the Old Testament. It is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who sets the, sets the pattern. So we're to concentrate on Him because He was faithful to the one who established Him. Now, the warning strikes home starting in verse 7. There is a challenge and then there will be a warning. And this is a tremendous section. Once again, it quotes extensively from the Old Testament. It relates to the wilderness wanderings. And we'll have to go back and, and walk around in the Old Testament a little bit. talks about Joshua as well. And then it ties everything together in a concluding section in verses, uh, chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. So we'll start getting into that warning section next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you that we have uh, Jesus Christ who is faithful, who is the pioneer of our spiritual life, the completer of our doctrine, the one that we are to imitate, the one that we are to pattern our lives and our thinking after. Father, we thank you for your grace in providing us with your word that strengthens us, encourages us, and guides and directs us. Now, Father, we pray that we would be responsive to the things that we've studied and learned this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.